from the repetitive studios of PBS 39 at the PPNL Public Media Center in the Christmas City of Bethlehem, PA. It's time for another look at a fine egg-laying hour of chemical-free horticultural hygiene. You bet your garden. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. I'm currently traveling around the country, giving garden talks and trying to dodge ice storms. And so today's show is a repeat of one of the best we did last year. We'll help you avoid tomato troubles this summer by discussing split skins and poor returns. And we'll remind you that not all tomato troubles are blight. Plus, a woman who clearly has too much fun with her flock explains how to make backyard chickens feel like part of the family. And your fabulous phone call questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and electrifyingly erudite elucidations. So grab a little pink sock, cats and kittens, because it all starts right here, right now. All right, welcome to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from PBS 39 WLVT in the beautiful Christmas city of Bethlehem, PA. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up a little bit later in the show, we will tell you why your tomatoes were terrible this past summer. And we will talk with Lisa Steele, author of a delightful new book about keeping chickens in your backyard. If you're thinking about chickens or not chickens, you won't want to miss it. And you won't. It's coming up after a couple of your fabulous phone calls. 833-727-9588. John, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hey, Mike. Hello, John. How are you, man? I'm good. How are you and your new digs? I am just ducky. Ducky in water. And where is John doing good? In Yale Springs, Ohio. um, You might know the area. I saw you in south of here in Xenia a couple years ago with your giant garlic bowl. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm very proud of my garlic. I take it around and brag about it. So you're also well, you're also yeah. just outside of the Dayton area. You're listening to us from Antioch University. Yeah, WISO, yep. Yep. Well, uh, I, I have a habanero pepper, which seems to have uh, survived the winter. Um, I certainly did not want to replant it because it was way too hot for, for me. And I, I mean, I like jalapenos, but habaneros, shoot. Man, I thought I was going to vomit when I whipped them up with some zucchini. I was like, I can't get these down. <laughs> so, but anyway, they came back up after a hard winter. It was, you know, we had a lot of days in January that were like seven below, and got four stems now, and it's loaded with habanero peppers. Okay, so you had a habanero plant planted in the ground in your garden. Yeah, yeah, and. It seemed to die back over the winter, but then new growth came up from the ground? Yep. It's like four stems. It's got four stems now. Okay. Um, I'm going to propose what happened is the same thing that happens with cherry tomatoes, that some of the fruits, because as you say, they were too hot for you, so you probably let some fruits hit the ground and just rot away there. And then I'm going to suppose— I cleared them. I cleared the plant and and went through my shredder, so they'd be all over my garden. Well, uh, you know, there's there's kids. worse plants to come up, um, but they're they're not everywhere. I really think the roots survived. That's, it that's, it, that's it would be unlikely. I think the better chance is that some seeds hit the ground and these are new plants. That happens a lot with tomatoes. But no matter yeah, what well, happened, I'm familiar. I'm familiar with that with with tomatoes, right? But for one thing, um, if they were cross-pollinated with my other peppers, I, I don't believe you'd still be getting habaneros. No, no, peppers, that's one of the nice things about saving seed of peppers is they don't cross-pollinate. Okay, okay. Neither I did tomatoes. Noticed, I would have noticed if there was four little pepper seedlings growing there. Yeah, what, what, uh, it's squash plants that if you save the seed, you get a different form of squash the next year. Oh, yeah, they're, they're open pollinated. Yeah, yeah they're, they're really, very they're really promiscuous crazy. plants. So yeah, they sure are. if you grow a hot pepper or even a bell pepper that you really like, it's actually fairly easy to turn that into a perennial plant. All you do is you dig it up out of the ground, preferably in September before the nights start to get too cool, and you pot it up into a nice plastic pot with good drainage. You use uh, a professional mix, a seed-starting mix, soil-free mix, 
potting mix, a nice light thing that has no garden soil in it to fill in around the tops and the bottom of the plant to fit it in the pot. And then you take a garden hose with an adjustable nozzle and you blast every inch of that plant because aphids always come in with your peppers. And then you set it aside in kind of a quarantine area. A couple days later, you do the same thing. You bring it inside. And if you provide really bright light, like it's underneath a four foot long uh, shop light and keep the plant really close to those fluorescent lights, it will flower and fruit for you indoors over the winter. Even if it doesn't do well indoors, just stays alive, you'll have a very large plant to start with next season. When I put out my second and third year peppers, I typically get ripe red, even full-size bell peppers uh, before my first tomato plant. It's a great trick. They are truly perennial. I can remember you talk about habaneros. I was down in Santa Fe and I saw a 30-year-old habanero tree that had, had never died. It was just the perfect climate for it to survive over winter. And it was stunning. I mean, nobody could have made a piece of art that nice. Okay, John? All right. Well, you can try that with your peppers if you like. Otherwise, we'll try to contact the Vatican and decide if what happened for you was truly the miracle of Yellow Springs, Ohio. All right, John. Thanks for calling. 833-PBS-WLVT. In numeric terms, that's 833-727-9588. Paul, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, Mike. How are you today? I am just ducky, Paul. Thank you for asking. How you doing, man? Oh, I'm not. I'm doing okay, but I have a tale of rose rosette woe in my garden. Boy, that disease that virus is growing it's rampant around the country i just got back from a wonderful time in north carolina giving a talk for a hospital who has uh, both a healing garden and a hospice uh, garden for their patients and the hospice garden was meant to be kind of an all rose garden and it's all rose rosette it's all the roses with this disfiguring virus that, you know, if you look at at the rosette itself, the weird kind of cane-like structure that branches off these roses, if you isolate it, it's quite beautiful. We picked a whole bunch of them and put them, you know, arranged them in, in like a jar with marbles and water, and they looked amazing. People didn't know what it was. They thought it was some desert plant, but this virus is... Um, afflicting roses all over the country. How many roses do you have, and do you know anything about the varieties? Yeah, the one that's really afflicted, or the one that I'm trying to save, um, it's an old Jackson Perkins variety called the Farmer's Wife, and that rose has been in that yard probably for 40 years, maybe, on the side, based on the size of the base, at mm -hmm. least for that or longer. And it's about, you know, it was initially about six feet tall and about 20 feet 25 feet long. I had taken a cutting of that and put it, in, uh, um, rooted it, and started another one. And both of those uh, really severely afflicted. Um, the one, the cutting is already dead, and the other one um, is, uh, I've been trying to rescue it by one of the roses that uh, Witch's Broom appears, cutting the cane as far back as I dare right. to, try, to try and isolate that. And so I, I was, and it's been failing, um, and so I'm afraid I'm going to lose that variety. It's not, you know, I, it's not in production anymore, I guess. And I have, one of the questions I had is, can, does, does it known if that virus, it, I know it runs down the cane to the root and kills, basically that's how it spreads, but does it uh, go distally? Does it go back up the healthy cane, so it doesn't have to transfer laterally? So if I wanted to start a cutting from a cane, say, on the other side of the plant, would that be okay, or am I really risking it, or is it already infected and dead? You know, in, um, in truth, nobody knows. When this first became uh, really prevalent a few years ago, people thought it was limited to the knockout rose, um, which had been overplanted. And any time you get that kind of a, um, a one-way planting system with just too many of the same plants, bad things tend to happen. Um, but now we're seeing it on a bunch. I will tell you there is hope. 
I have uh, a flower carpet rose, a French landscape rose, that at first mm -hmm. I stupidly thought it had cross-pollinated with some of my cane fruits, with some of my raspberries and wine berries, because um, the, it, it is a cane-like structure that comes off the top of, of the rose plant. And at first I thought this was cool. I'm going to have a rose that's going to give me raspberries, you know, because they're in the same family. And, of course, then I later found out that I was letting a virus uh, inoculate all my other roses. So as soon as I realized this was a bad thing, I went out and pruned all that stuff off, just totally ignoring what time of year it was. All rules are off when you got something like that that you're fighting. And the next year, the rose grew out. It was probably August before I started to see the deformed canes at the top. So I cut it back hard, and boom, that was it. Now that rose is perfectly normal. Every once in a while, every couple of years, it'll, it'll try to get a little, uh, a little uh, rosette cane out. And I just clip mm -hmm. it off as soon as I see it. Um, but I, I think a lot of it has to do with the same antiviral tactics that we use in people. The stronger the immune system of the rose, the more you can weaken the virus itself. Now, let me ask you the basic planting questions. Are your yep. are your roses mulched? They are mulched with leaf mulch. Okay. So I, I, I do my own leaf mulch and spread that around. Okay. And then I use in the spring and maybe in midsummer some uh, uh, Roses Alive, if you're familiar with the product, or Rose Tone. Oh, okay. Uh, Roses Alive would be from Gardens Alive, and Rose Tone yes. would be from Espoma. They're both premier yeah. suppliers of uh, organic and natural plant foods. Uh, one thing I want you to do is, although the leaf mulch is great, use that on your vegetable garden or your shrubs or something like that, and let some of your shredded leaves cook down until they become pure black compost. And, uh -huh. and that's what I want under that rose. Compost has all these disease-fighting properties. Now, this is a virus and not a typical plant disease, but I think we want to throw every positive thing we can at it. Um, to answer your question directly, as you know, roses are, are very easy to propagate. So what I would do is... You know, get rid of his, get rid of all the virus uh, areas that are visible right now. Even though this is not the correct time to prune plants, we're going to do it anyway. So, you know, I want that as limited out of there as much as possible over the winter. And then in the spring, when new growth appears, I want you to look for the healthiest new growth, the canes that look the best. I want you to clip them off immediately drop them into lukewarm water, bring them inside, get a whole bunch of medium-sized pots with good drainage and excellent potting soil, nothing with chemicals in it. If you're, if you're getting from Gardens Alive and Espoma, uh, you, you won't have anything bad in your potting soil, your seed starting mix. So fill these pots up with nothing but seed starting mix, potting soil, soil-free mix, whatever you want to call it. And then use a pencil to go, excuse me, use a pencil to push into the soil. Don't push it in with the cane. Make a hole with a pencil, drop the cane into it, fill the soil around the side, maybe do two or three canes a pot if they're good size, maybe just one cane a pot. But I want you to take 12 to 20 cuttings. And then, so you don't need you don't need the tip of the cane per se. You can take cuttings along the cane as well. Um, you want the tip. You want the you tip the unless tip. unless it has formed a flower, and then you can okay. still do it, but you have to cut the flower off. Okay. So yeah, the, you the, don't the other... you don't want two openings. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to saturate those pots with water. Sit them in a sink for an hour or so, maybe two hours until they get really heavy, then put them in a place with dappled light, not direct sun, and hang a plastic bag on a hanger over top of each one to keep the humidity high. Mist those cuttings every morning. You want to see water droplets on the inside of the bag. And then when you see new growth, take the bag off, put the plants outside in medium sun, 
put an inch or two of compost on top of the pot and then watch to see which ones are the healthiest. And then I would also suggest you plant them as far away from uh, the farmer's wife that you have that's infected. Try to take them to another part of the landscape, even if it's only temporary. Um, get them into a spot where they're not going to be near the mother plant and watch them carefully. And with the mother plant, I, I think the answer is endless pruning. You know, these roses are very healthy. Um, oh, they yeah. grow very aggressively. You can cut them back over and over again. It's not going to harm the root system of the plant. But if you keep attacking this virus, if you keep feeding the plant with compost, I, you will have done everything a human can do to fight back. If the area is, is if, if like the rose that has died back, or is essentially dead, to dig that out. Now, that is there a time frame not to plant another rose there? Is the soil contaminated, and how long would that take to clear? Oh, I would plant something completely different there after you get that okay. rose out. Yeah, there's no... See, you, you, want, you want as many good cards in your hand as possible. You don't want to accidentally propagate the virus instead of roses. Sounds good. All right, but uh, take my advice, take my example. I believe there is hope, but you got to be on it, and you got to be cutting these uh, damaged parts off as soon as they appear. And it doesn't matter what time of year. I, I could no that any other hard right now. Any other plant, I would say, do not prune it at this time of year. Allow it to go dormant. But we're in the emergency room now. We we don't have time for that. Okay, sounds good. All right, Thanks good so luck, much. Paul. Thank you. Thanks for taking my call. Well, thank you for making it. It's an important subject. It's affecting a lot of people. Um, unfortunately, thousands of people are going to go outside now and realize, oh, my God, that's what's happening to my rose. So it's vital information. Okay, great. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and announce that I will appear at the fabulous Philadelphia Flower Show at 4 p.m. on Wednesday, March 6th. Then it's on to Homestead Gardens in Annapolis, Maryland on Saturday, April 6th. But don't go looking for all the details at the events section of our website just yet, because we'll be right back to tackle tomato troubles and have too much fun with chickens. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to a rebroadcast of a classic You Bet Your Garden from last November on WLVT, PBS 39 in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden from WLVT, PBS 39, in the beautiful Christmas city of Bethlehem, PA. Coming up later in the show, more of your fabulous phone calls, and we will discuss why you had such a terrible tomato harvest this past summer. Yes, almost all of you did. I did great, but then I'm supposed to. Anyway, it is time to welcome our special guest in this middle segment, Lisa Steele, author of the new book, 101 Chicken Keeping Hacks from Fresh Eggs Daily. Tips, tricks, and ideas for you and your hens, your lovely hens, aren't those beautiful birds? And it is new from what I would say Voyager Press, but it's spelled really funny. So is it, Lisa, is it Voyager? Ah, uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I say Voyager, but you're right. There's an extra little U in there that I'm not sure what to do with. Yeah, well, I think we're supposed to be classier uh, than just Voyager. I think we're supposed to throw a little French onto that. <laughs> well, we can do that. Welcome to You Bet Your Garden. I've been enjoying your book. You know, that it's almost down to the question among um, organic gardeners. Uh, chickens or no chickens? Uh, chickens are, are really hot right now, and it's been a trend that hasn't diminished. Um, what, what do you attribute that to, to begin with? 
Well, I think that it's it's the whole thing of knowing what you're eating, being comfortable that what you're eating is eating healthy. And, I mean, there's nothing like going into your backyard and collecting eggs right from your chicken coop. You know, they're just fresher. And I think that's what hooks people initially is the eggs. But then once you get to know the chickens and they really do become pets and you name them and now you've got this little flock of of really friendly, adorable chickens in your backyard. So I just think there's a lot of appeal in that sense. But... um, the whole thing about eating healthy and, and all that is just such a big trend right now. I get a feeling that we're not eating these hens, however. No, we're just eating their eggs. That's okay. right. And so throw <laughs> us some names. Uh, what, which, what, which are your favorite children out there in your backyard? Oh, Violet. Violet definitely is, is the flock favorite. Um, she's 11 to Orpington. But I have Abigail and... Uh, Charlotte, and I, I tend to go for people names, you know, because they're <laughs> they're kind of like little people, little little ladies with their personalities. Uh, but I have Ginger, and I mean, just I think I've had eighteen chickens now and twelve ducks. So, well, if you have Ginger, you have to have Marianne to balance things right. out. <laughs> and I don't actually. I guess I should. Now you come from a long line of chicken farmers, raisers, people who have flocks around. Um, But you seem mostly influenced by your grandparents. You used a different word in terms of uh, the way they ran their little farm. I'm going to call them junkies. (laughs) Yeah, they, I mean, that was the generation. They they did have a chicken farm. That's how they supported their family. They had a diner and they um, raised the meat and the eggs for the diner from their, their chicken flock, so it really was a business for them. But, you know, they they were that generation where you didn't throw things away and you fixed things and, and you, you know, went to the dump and you got something that you thought had more life in it. And I just really love that. And that's kind of a trend now, too, is just the whole reusing and repurposing. Um, it seems like people are into that again. We have to be. We're out of places to throw stuff away. <laughs> there isn't any more room for that, so we got to reuse it again, and then we get to throw it away. True. Now, um, so you say you've got a, a, about uh, 18 hens and a bunch of ducks. Do you have any roosters? You know, because that's once people get check, uh, get chickens or get serious about chickens, that's the next thing, rooster or no rooster. Um. I do right now, we hatched one that was supposed to be a hen, and he ended up being a rooster. He's a bantam, so he's really small. He's only about the size of maybe a softball. So I think he'll be okay. I've tried roosters in the past, and they're great until they hit this point where they decide that they hate you and (laughs) are going to protect their flock against you. And and when a pet starts coming at you with their talons and their beak, you know, ready to rip you to shreds, that's kind of the point where it's not fun anymore. Um, so that's usually the point where they find a new home with someone else. But we're going to try a little Sherman because he's very small, and I think he might be okay. Sherman, huh? Sherman, yeah. I like that. I like that. Now, um, I will tell you uh, my favorite chicken story is I was visiting a nearby farm, my my best farmer friends, the DeVaults. They have a farm called, uh, God, no, I can't, uh, Pheasant Run, Pheasant Hill. And uh, they had chickens and they were in um, an outdoor run with, you know, uh, netting over top because we have a lot of red tailed hawks where I live. While I'm sitting there in the driveway talking to my friends, a red tailed hawk plummets down out of the sky, rips through this covering and runs after the chickens. And out comes the rooster and the most amazing fight ensued. And George and I actually had to go in there and save the red-tailed hawk who tried oh, no. to who tried to turn tail but couldn't get it's it's easy sometimes it's easy to get in, but it ain't easy to get out. And right. you know, that I was impressed with the ferocity of a rooster. That's crazy. Yeah, even as small as Sherman is when the chickens are out roaming, he tends to keep an eye on the sky because we have the red-tailed hawks, too, here in Maine. And, you know, if he sees a hawk, he'll make his little screechy sound and all the chickens run for cover. And he stands there, you know, with his chest out, like all tough. And, I mean, he weighs all of, what, 14 ounces or something? <laughs> um, <laughs> but he's ready to do battle. I mean, fortunately, it hasn't come to that because I can run in and scoop him up. But um, I think he would definitely give it a good shot. <laughs> Now, be honest, what 
how much time is involved with taking really good care of a flock? This is not something like having a cat around the house who could care little about anything as long as they get fed and they have uh, your fresh laundry to sleep on. There's a lot of responsibility <laughs> with having chickens. Well, I, you know, I was just—I was at a fair this past weekend signing books, and I was talking to a lot of people who didn't have chickens, and they were asking that same question. And I would put chickens somewhere in between cats and dogs. I mean, dogs are super high maintenance. You have to feed them. You need to let them sleep in your bed. You have to play frisbee with them. They want your attention all the time. And then, right, the other end of the spectrum is the cat, where might show up for dinner. Yeah. And then to, to sleep on your laundry. Um, but chickens kind of fall somewhere in the middle because once you have the whole system set up, you can actually put food out for them for, say, a week. They won't overeat. So you can fill up a big feeder, fill up a big waterer. And as long as they're in a secure pen, I mean, you really could go away for the weekend. And they, would, they put themselves to bed at night. You can get an automatic door. So, you know, if you set it upright, chickens can be very low maintenance, but that initial setup can be a little bit costly and, and involved. But on a day-to-day, um, 10 minutes if I have to, but the reality is I spend way more time with them than I need to just because I enjoy it. Oh, you are obviously a doting mother here. I've been <laughs> through the book, and it's hilarious. Children don't have as many toys as your chickens do. You're so worried about them getting bored. You you hide food inside like plastic containers. It's almost like <laughs> keeping the primates active at the zoo. You hide food around. You you know, it's almost like you make little movies that they can watch in the corner of your coop. <laughs> well, it is true and it is important. I mean I do I have a very short attention span, so I tend to get bored easily and I think I put that on all of our animals. I always worry that everyone is entertained and but with chickens it's Board, it really can lead to bad things. I mean, they can start pecking at each other, pulling out feathers, you know, to the point where they'll actually kill one of the flock mates if, you know, if it comes to that. So I mean, they really do need a lot of space. They need a lot of enrichment, a lot of toys, uh, maybe not to the extent that, that I do, but I'm, I'm just trying to give people suggestions. You know, they don't have to do everything I do necessarily. Well, I have a feeling that you're as amused by some of these things as your chickens are. What's your What's your favorite chicken toy? Oh, well, well, not really a toy, but the tutus. Until you have seen a chicken running across the lawn in a pink tutu, you really <laughs> have to live your life. <laughs> oh, so every day, is, every day is Halloween at the Fresh Eggs Daily Farm, huh? Well, I have to believe that a hawk, you know, just kind of flying by, checking things out, I think they might stop and think twice before swooping down on a chicken and tutu. I think it might just throw them off just that much that, you know, the chickens can just graze safely. I don't know. Or they, they might wonder if they miss the opening of the show. <laughs> now, you make, you make your own chicken feed. Um, you tell people in the book that commercial chicken feed is fine. But you like to mix your own. Now, is this money-saving, or you're just controlling all these aspects of chicken nutrition that would surprise most people some of the foods they need to, to stay healthy? I mean, it's not, just, it, it's not just cornmeal mash or something. Your chicken feed has, like, 12 ingredients in it. Yeah, I mean, I, I do, uh, full disclosure, I do use commercial chicken feed um, mainly, you know, I'm busy and I travel a lot. Mixing your own does take a little bit of effort, and it probably is not as inexpensive unless you have a really great local mill that you can source in bulk. But same as, you know, knowing what your food is eating and, and what your um, your animals and all that are eating. You know, when you're mixing your own, you know exactly what's going into it. It does have to be balanced. You can't just go out and buy a bunch of grains and mix them together and toss them to your, I mean, you can, but for, you know, optimal laying and optimal health and that, it really does need to be balanced because they're laying eggs. That takes a lot of energy out of them, a lot of nutrients out of them. So more than other types of animals, I think chicken feed is really important that it's balanced. So I do offer a pretty detailed recipe on how to mix your own, but I think a better idea, especially for beginners, is to mix um, what we call scratch grains, which are basically a treat. So that doesn't have to be as balanced, and you really can just go out and grab a handful of this, a handful of that, mix it together, and throw it to your chickens because it's not their main diet. It's just a kind of supplemental treat to their diet. 
Right. So there uh, that's one thing I wanted to cover. There are a lot of different elements of feeding chickens. It's not just the the main feed. But as you say, you've also got this chicken scratch that and then I guess that relieves boredom, too, because that's all different. And they have to, like, dig it up off the ground. And and there's also this mysterious thing that people who don't have chickens like me do not understand, which is grit. Right. So, yeah, so so good point. So chickens need layer feed, whether you mix your own or buy commercial. Then the scratch grains are basically a treat, mostly in the winter, and, and to keep them from getting bored. Um, the grains are high energy, and it keeps them warm. So then you've got your grit, which basically is dirt. Grandma's chickens did not eat commercial grit. They just walked around, and they picked up stones as they were roaming around. So if you're letting your chickens out for even a part of the day, they'll they'll likely pick up the stones that they need. Uh, we have a dirt driveway, so when I let the chickens out, they run over to the driveway and they start eating rocks, which alarms people. <laughs> but they need that. <laughs> they don't. Chickens don't have teeth, so they, those little stones that they keep in their crop, which is basically like a gullet or a gizzard, that's what grinds up the food that they eat since they don't have teeth. So if you see your chickens eating little stones, do not be alarmed. They do need that. So. You, a lot of your food recipes, your feed recipes, one of the things you'll say in parentheses is this is really good to make really golden yellow uh, yolks um, in your egg. And I, I was talking with my friend Diane. She uh, visited India and Pakistan and all those remote places when she was younger. And she can remember being served eggs that had no color. It was almost, you know, it was almost all white. And so it, it just emphasized to me how much the nutrition that the chicken gets, because they were in a very poor area, there wasn't a lot of good food for the chickens, results in a really distinctly healthful eggs. You can probably look at an egg once it's cracked open and tell how well that chicken was cared for, right? Well, yeah, exactly, how well that chicken eats. That's true. A lot of people think that fresh eggs have orange yolks, but it really is the chicken's diet. The things that she's eating are translating directly into that egg yolk, you know, for the color and a little bit for the taste, too. You know, not specific foods, but the, the overall diet will make a, a tastier egg. Now, that's an interesting thought. Uh, I know you use herbs, you use fruit, you use all kind of hippie stuff to keep your chickens <laughs> amused. Can you actually affect the taste of an egg by um, feeding a chicken, say, an abundance of a certain herb, something like that? No, unfortunately. I, I don't believe you can. Because I'm seeing this. I, we're going into business together. We're like vanilla-scented <laughs> eggs, tarragon <laughs> eggs, rosemary eggs, you know. Wouldn't that be awesome? I wish, I really wish you could. I, I, I truly don't believe you can because, um, you know, I do feed my chickens a lot of herbs. I feed them a lot of garlic, and I don't taste that in the egg, unfortunately, because I think garlic eggs would be really great. That'd be fabulous, yeah. I'll grow yeah, the garlic, you grow the eggs. <laughs> well, it is, it's a fun book, whether you want to raise chickens or you just want to see. Is that, I didn't see the tutu photo in here. Did, are we missing out on that? Do we, do we need uh, an addendum? There's, <laughs> there's a little one in the back, and then on page 172, you have Violet on kind of in all her full glory, just trotting across the yard in her tutu. Oh, my goodness. Um, we'll, we'll put this up in a better way. I still haven't <laughs> learned how to be on television, but there's, there's Violet. I'm sorry if you're listening to us on the radio. you got to go to the website. We will, we will put Violet up in all her chickeny glory, dressed for Halloween or to go out for a night on the town. <laughs> Yeah, uh, if, you, if you love animals, you'll love this book. Lisa Steele is the author. The book is 101 Chicken Keeping Hacks from Fresh Eggs Daily, which is the name of your business. Tips, tricks, and ideas for you and your hens. It's from Voyager Press. Voyager, that's right. <laughs> All right, Lisa, thanks so much for being on You Bet Your Garden. Thanks, Mike. Bye-bye. 
Well, it's time for me to take a little break and yell last call for our special flower show event this coming Wednesday, March 6th. We have a few pair of tickets left for a select group of public broadcasting supporters to join me for a meet and greet with drinks and d'oeuvres beginning at 530. Then I'll escort this esteemed group over into the flower show for a behind the scenes tour with the show's designer. Makes a great gift, hint, hint. Get all the details at youbetyourgarden.org. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to a rebroadcast of a classic You Bet Your Garden from last November on WLVT PBS 39 in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. I am your host, Mike McGrath. In just a little bit, we'll get to the question of the week, answering a number of questions about tomato troubles that occurred this past summer. If you didn't get good tomatoes, don't worry. It probably wasn't your fault. We'll get to that after a couple more of your fabulous phone calls. All right, our phone number, our new phone number. Write it down on your refrigerator or your dishwasher, whatever you look at the most often is 1-833-727-9588. Mark, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, Mike. How are you? I am just ducky today, Mark. Thank you for asking. How are you, sir? I am good. Thank you very much. And where is Mark good? I'm calling from Deerfield, Illinois, just down the road from the Chicago Botanic Garden. Oh, man. I love Chicago. I grew up in Philadelphia, and when I first visited Chicago, it was like, Oh, my God, did I grow up here, too, as well? It's just that, that right kind of city. Oh, I love Chicago. All right, Mark, what can we do you for? Uh, well, I was calling with both a question and an answer. Oh, um, good. Then I can just go take a nap. I love these calls. Yeah. Well, the, the, which would you prefer me to start with? Well, let's start with the question. Okay. The question is, I have a camellia, which is one of the cold-hardy varieties um, and it's uh, reportedly cold hardy to zone six, but here in Chicago we're five B. Yeah. So my my plan was to bring this camellia, which is in a, a very large pot, to bring it in to my garage in the dead of winter to protect it from the elements. Um, the area of the garage where I'm going to place it is up against. Um, interior walls of the house, uh, and the garage rarely gets below 20 degrees um, in, the, in the dead of winter. The problem is it's also, um, uh, there are no windows in the garage. So my question is, do I need to get some sort of light uh, to provide some, some light source in the middle of the winter? And also, do you recommend any insulation of the pot or the plant uh, in the dead of winter when it's in the garage. Um, yeah, and okay, uh, should I ask you what your answer is, or is that a different topic? Different topic. Okay, so um, you are correct. It won't survive outside. The fact that it's in a pot um, means that you can bring it inside. Now, if you want to be a true cowboy gardener, I presume, are you going to have to lay this thing on its side, or is your garage big enough to accommodate it? Oh, it's, it's still a small plant, so it's totally fine to accommodate. If you it's bring it in, uh, is there any chance you'd think about bringing it into the house? Uh, not, not if I want to stay married. No. Okay. All right. We got that covered. Um, yeah, so put it in the garage. Uh, put it up in a nice place where you'll see it, and hang a shop light over top of it. A four-foot-long fluorescent tube shop light with two new tubes. And, uh, you know, you can actually get LEDs in the shape of those fluorescent tubes. It's very cool. And if you keep the light really close to the top of the plant and uh, into the center of this shop light thing, uh, I expect it would flower for you over the winter. Um, I would water it 
very gently. That is not a lot of water over the winter because plants over winter don't use a lot of water. I might feed it almost a homeopathic amount of a liquid plant food, a very dilute. And in terms of protection, I think we just go back to when we used to make uh, spook houses in our basement around Halloween. Just hang a sheet or a blanket in between the plant and the outside world of cold and the plants under the light it's protected from those really harsh breezes um mm -hmm. obviously get in and out of the garage really fast if you have room in the garage for your car most people don't but i think that would be the best way to keep it alive and uh in the tropics these things flower uh every month of the year so you know the worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to go out to your garage and see beautiful flowers that's awesome great thank you what's your answer well my answer is to a previous phone call i made to you um several months ago i i had called you about my impossibly alkaline soil here uh and growing azaleas and rhododendron and you had, had suggested that i not use the ammonium oh yeah you know you don't want to use ammonium nitrate unless you're blowing up a building Correct. Um, and you had asked why the, the pH of the soil was so impossibly uh, alkaline here in Chicago, and I have an answer for you. Okay. So apparently several hundred million years ago, the, the, uh, the Chicago area was uh, in the tropics, and there was an ocean here, and the shellfish. Um, that and the and skeletons of the the shelf of the uh, fish there right. um, created a limestone uh, bedrock. Cool. And so the limestone bedrock is the reason why our pH is so high. And I probably told you to fill the hole with almost a hundred percent peat moss and dust some sulfur around. Did you do that? I did, and they're they they did great through the year and. Hopefully they'll bloom again next spring. That's why I get the big money, Mark. All <laughs> right. Well, thank you for a great question, and thank you for telling me I got one right for a change. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and let our listeners and our viewers around the nation in on a very special treat. Every year, You Bet Your Garden has a special event at the Philadelphia Flower Show, where the flower show designer Sam Lemhenny and I have a meet and greet with our listeners, and then Sam and I take you on a behind-the-scenes tour of the central exhibit of the Philadelphia Flower Show and talk about what it takes to pull off this mammoth undertaking. It is a fabulous event. It is also a fundraiser for the station that brings you You Bet Your Garden. So if you would like more information, the event will be Wednesday, March 6th, right in the middle of the Flower Show, beginning at 5.30 and lasting until you can't stand up anymore. For more information, call 1-800-360-0039 or just check out our website, YouBetYourGarden.org. All right, cats and kittens, as promised, it is time for the question of the week, which we are calling, What the Heck Happened to My Tomatoes This Year? Anne in Tacoma Park, Maryland writes, Mike, can you tell me why all of our tomatoes split open just as they ripened up this year? I say it's from the tremendous amount of rain we had, but my husband disagrees. What do you think? Thanks. Well, Anne, I think that you must have thought this would be the first time in history that the husband was right. Come on, sheesh. 
Of course you're correct. Ginormous amounts of rain will cause most varieties to split. The fruit simply fills up with more water than the skin can contain. You want to pick those split fruits right away and use them to make tomato sauce so they don't go to waste. In the future, read catalog descriptions carefully and choose some of your varieties that are said to, quote, resist cracking and splitting. These tomato varieties are bred to have thicker skins, as am I. We move on to Rosalind, who writes, Hi, Mike. I recently moved from Connecticut to Carnation, Washington, which is 40 miles outside of Seattle, west of the Cascades. I follow all your advice and grew tomatoes successfully in Connecticut for over 10 years. But the prevailing consensus out here is that you can't grow tomatoes except in a greenhouse because of all the rain. Funny thing is, Connecticut got more rain and is much more humid than this part of Washington state. Anyway, I believe my tomatoes have a disease known as septoria. I've constructed raised beds filled with topsoil, perlite, and compost, plus two inches of compost on top. I water deeply and only with drip irrigation, feed with espomas tomato tone, and space the plants far apart. I waited until it warmed up in June to put my homegrown seedlings out. I'm mostly growing varieties that are recommended for this area by local seed companies, early beef steaks and cherry tomatoes. This is the first year I'm growing anything in these beds, let alone tomatoes. So how did I get this blight, or am I just paranoid? I'm getting yellow leaves starting at the bottom of the plants and working up, then brown spots surrounded by yellow. I'm removing the discolored leaves as soon as possible, but sure seem to be removing a lot of them. As I write to you in August, the fruit is setting, but not as much as I'm used to. I'm enclosing some pictures. Is there anything I can do? I love my tomatoes and devote half my garden beds to them, which I've been told is totally not a Pacific Northwest gardening thing. Well, Rosalind, after a careful look at your photos, I see no sign of blight which is good because true blight, meaning the same pathogen that caused the Great Famine in Ireland in the 1860s, is a nasty actor. It's also hard to mistake. Blight causes the leaves of your tomatoes and the fruits to develop greasy round spots. Then the whole plant quickly turns dead and black and dead. It's hard to confuse with lesser ailments, which is why people use the biblical term blight to describe it. Anyhow, your symptoms do sound like one of the soil-borne wilts that strike tomatoes that have grown in the same place several years in a row. I'd suggest that maybe tomatoes grew there before you entered the picture, but more than likely it was just too bad word wet this summer. And more importantly, you say your tomatoes are spaced far apart, your photos show that your plants are more crowded than a Japanese subway car at rush hour on a Friday. I sent this to Rosalind and she responded. I'm so glad it isn't blight. I've always followed the seed packet directions of spacing for my tomato seeds, seedlings. But I took a look at your recommendations and you recommend at least a foot between mature plants. Does that mean a four foot seedling space on center in rows next time? It would be good to plan better so they don't have to move or rip out mature plants. Well, honest answers are always going to take local conditions into account. You're in a situation where excessive moisture and lack of sun and heat are always going to be an issue. So more space between plants will always equal better results. Now, my basic plan that involves caging the tomatoes inside a two-foot footprint and then ensuring a row of airflow between plants doesn't leave anything up to chance. Your plants are, instead of that, are on top of each other, a death knell in your historically wet region. In regions like yours with short wet seasons, you also have to grow tomatoes with the shortest days to maturity. It's a number on every seed packet. You're looking for number 75 or lower. You must also space them further apart than normal people. Just one tomato in each raised bed, but you can surround it with flowers, herbs, and other small plants that aren't going to block the airflow. 
I guarantee you'll get more tomatoes from four plants using such a plan than you will from 12 plants all jammed together. Now, if you are super competent at raising fabulous starts, which are short, stocky, and vibrantly green, sure, continue to grow your own. But few gardeners are good at this. And if your starts really look like minute bowl, give it up and buy good ones at the local nursery. And finally, if your climate is honestly a bit too short and a bit too cool for proper tomato propagation, yes, invest in a little mid-season-only greenhouse and your love apple production will double, maybe better. Well, that sure was a nice CSI on Tomato Troubles 2018, now wasn't it? Luckily for yous, make that us with short attention spans. What was I saying? Huh? Oh, the question of the week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. To read it over in detail, just click the link for the question of the week at our website, which is still and will forever be youbetyourgarden.org. That's a pretty shiny object over there. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden question of the week, and you will always find the latest question of the week at the Gardens Alive website. Yikes, my producer is threatening to fry my green tomatoes. If I don't get out of this studio, we must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 833-727-9588 or send us your email, your tired, your poor, your wretched refuse teeming towards our garden shore at YB. YG at WLVT.org. Please include your location. And you'll find all this new contact information at our website, YouBetYourGarden.org, where you'll also find the answers to all your garden questions, audio of this show, video of this show, and our podcast. Ken Queter plays our theme song. Our chief content officer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our engineer is Choo Choo Charlie. Our social media director is Amanda McGrath. Check out her fine work and stay current with what's happening with the show every day at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Tavia Minnick works the phones and lifts those bales. Our website wonder is Anastasia Weckerly. Jazzy Jonas Bowen is our audio editor. Our harassed and harried director is Javier Diaz. With the stars, John DeSantis, Kelly Hurd, Jake Boyer and Jack the Tack as the Beaver. Royal Ron Ruscha is our director of underwriting. Our marketing madman is Jim McDonald. Affable Andy Cummins makes the equipment work. Still late for a meeting is our sustainable CEO, Tim Fallon. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. Thanks for listening to this rebroadcast of one of our favorite shows from last fall. And yes, I really did battle an ice storm in St. Louis, one that followed me all the way from Mount Vernon, Illinois. Then there was that unfortunate incident at the Chicago airport, not to mention the travel drama of speaking in Connecticut on a Friday and in Chantilly, Virginia the next day. But I'm out of the air and on the ground for now. So I will see you with all new adventures beginning next week.